Please be seated. Thank you, Sam. Uh, yeah, we have four children, and they're all very bashful, like Sam. So <laughs> they're a shy sort. But <laughs> a little story about him. But, uh, so when we were missionaries in the Philippines, we went to the Philippines. And I told the kids uh, on our first day we were going to church in Pasay. Remember that, Marlene? And uh, we were going to one of our churches. We had many in, in the Manila area, and. Uh, I told the kids, I said, now we're new, we're guests, we're visitors, this is not our, you know, domain or anything like that, we're, we're coming in, so just behave accordingly, let's not get over the top or anything like that, just, you know, that kind of thing. So we get to the place, and we slide the van door open, and Sam jumps out and runs in the church and says, we're here, the party can start! <laughs> I thought, well, let's... Uh, that's not exactly what I had in mind, but I, I, I guess the party started. So, what's that? It was, he was eight years old. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he wasn't thirty. No, no that was. <laughs> he was eight. Yeah, eight years old. Praise the Lord. <laughs> that's great. His oldest brother would never do that. He would probably be the one that would come in the back door. So they're uh, different. But uh, praise the Lord. Um, so this morning, what we'd like to do, we'd like to talk a little bit about a story that many of you have probably heard about. It's in Mark chapter 4, verses 35. In fact, I think it might even be up on the screen. We can kind of read it here. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples that he is Jesus. And he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, uh, they took him along just as he was in the boat there were also other boats with him. A furious squall, which by the way, uh, you'll find the same story in Matthew chapter uh, 8 and also in Luke chapter 8, but it doesn't say anything about any other boats. We'll talk about that in a few moments. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Okay, Jesus was in the stern. Now Jesus wasn't stern, he was in the stern, so he's in the front of the boat. Uh, sleeping on a cushion, uh, the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? It's probably more like this. Master, don't you care if we drown? I mean, you know, they, were, they thought they were going down. He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, uh, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Literally in Greek, it's two words, or in Aramaic, it would be in two words, which is what they spoke then, which is quiet, still. Um, and they were in command form. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? And very different than when they came off the mountain and uh, the demon had possessed the young boy, when he said, You have little faith? He doesn't say little faith here. What does he say? Why do you, st you still have no faith. No faith. No faith. All right. They were terrified. Uh, they'd seen this spectacle, uh, unusual kind of squall that had taken place. It was there, and they were terrified. They asked each other, you know, with his immediate calm, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And uh, that story is a fascinating one, and I've probably, I had probably preached on it, I don't know, a uh, dozen times or more uh, through the years when I was a younger pastor, and, and I'm sure that Pastor Ron, Pastor Michael, they've probably preached on this passage many times. Um, and I had always focused on the kinds of things that people focus on when they read this 
story. What are those things? Well, the things are Jesus' command, obviously, over the elements, right? That Jesus is supreme not only over things in this world that we have an impact over, but he's the creator, not just the savior, creator. It tells us in Colossians that, uh, that all things that were made were made by him and through him everything that was made that has been made. So, in other words, we know that Jesus was co-equal with the Father and he was involved in the creation. Uh, we have a tendency to focus on him as Savior, but here he shows dominance over the creation. So he calms the wind and the waves. So that was frequently a theme. Another theme would be, you know, that everybody's fine until they get in the boat and, uh, and then all of a sudden there's the storm and, it, uh, and how quickly fear uh, can take over and faith can melt away. I mean, you know, those are some of the things that I probably preached on. I'm, I'm quite sure I did. Um, there are, there's the element of, of Jesus being able to be calm when they're terrified, right? So kind of should be a model for us. He's asleep in the stern boat. He's completely in control whether it looks like it or not. There's even a verse in chapter 2, verse 8, uh, where it says parenthetically after it says he's in control of all things. He says, even though at present it doesn't appear so. That's the way it says in the New International Version. Even though at present it doesn't appear so. He's in charge. He's not sleeping. He's a God that never sleeps and never slumbers, right? So those were some of the emphases that, uh, and of course then they reached the other side safely, um, and we know that that's the case, etc. And so those were kind of the, the, the foci, if you will, that I had focused on on preaching a lot until September of uh, 2008. And I read this story through very different eyes. After 17 months of struggling with cancer, our number two son passed away. I've shared a little bit about that. And I read this story, and I saw something I'd never seen before in about 25 or 30 years of being a pastor and in ministry. And it was just the very first words of the whole passage. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, let's go to the other side. You know, and I got thinking about that. I thought, wow, yeah. So what's on the other side? What was he inviting people to? Was he inviting them to greatness? He certainly was, because, and I'll explain in a few moments, there's some of the most significant things that the disciples had ever participated in are on the other side. You see, up to this point in time, um, they had seen what I would call garden variety miracles, if there's such a thing, but they had seen the kinds of things that I certainly participated in. I've prayed for people's physical healing and they've been healed. I've uh, cast demons out of people, etc. It talks about, and you, and you see that in Mark chapter 1, you see both of those things. Uh, and Peter's mother-in-law, she's healed, she's sick, but she gets better. We've prayed for people. We do it every week, don't we? Don't we put out a, Cindy uh, magnificently sends out a, and what's our expectation? That God will answer prayer and that he'll heal. And we've hopefully experienced that. Anybody ever seen a physical or experienced personally a physical healing? Okay, yeah, okay, there's nine of you okay not very many well come and talk to one that raised the hand there just a few moments ago so they're miracles indeed they're a suspension of nature or there's something that uh, kind of reverses the order of things etc and so they had participated in all of that to this point chapter two there's a fellow that's lowered down through a roof by four friends and Jesus forgives his sins and tells him to get up and walk and he'd never walked that was probably one of the more spectacular ones in chapter 3, uh, there was a man with a shriveled hand who was trying to hide it. It's on the Sabbath, 
not supposed to heal on the Sabbath according to the, to the religious leaders of the day, but Jesus told the man to stretch out his hand and he healed his hand. So there are some of those things that take place, certainly. The disciples, if you'll notice, were pretty much observers uh, in all of those episodes. They're not exercising their faith. If They certainly have faith. They have left their nets, and they, it tells us that in chapter 1. They came and they followed Jesus, and so they're walking along with Jesus at the time. And so they had faith, but they weren't exercising it in phenomenal degrees. But what happened on the other side? Jesus invited them to go to the other side. And I was sitting there, because I'm thinking in terms of other side with my son laying there, we don't know what's on the other side until we're there. And I was thinking, I don't want to go to the other side. I don't want our son to go to the other side. I'd like to be on this side. And then you start thinking about the spectacular things that Daniel and uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah infers, and certainly John in his revelation kind of clearly states, at least in picture language. And we realize that there's got to be something grand on the other side. <sighs> Boy, going to the other side, though, is kind of a tough thing. So I'm trying to think, well, what happened with the disciples after that? Well, if you were, you know, opening up your Bibles now and you just said, I'm curious, what is that? Well, they get on the other side and they're immediately met with a demoniac, not just any demoniac. This isn't your garden variety kind. In fact, when Jesus confronts the demon and the person in whom the, uh, the demons were living, um, when asked their name, he said, Legion, because we're many. And uh, we hadn't seen that really in the entirety of Scripture, that there was somebody that was overcome. You know, he could possess an entire village of people. And, uh, and Jesus ends up casting demons at their request into a herd of pigs, 2,000 of them, and they rushed down to their death over the cliff. And the people were so undone with what they had seen because the man was not easily restrained by anyone. They couldn't even contain him with, you know, the chains and bars and ropes and conventional things that people use to do that. It's a pretty spectacular miracle that took place on the other side that they witnessed. Now, it's inferred in one of the Gospels that there are other boats, and in this Gospel specifically with them, but it's inferred that only one boat was there with the disciples. The squall comes up, and what happens to the other boats? Yeah, we like Jesus, but we like shore and safety, and they return. Uh, it's presumed most theologians uh, would agree with that uh, assessment. Just one group gets to get over there to the other side and then see the spectacular stuff that they saw on the other side that they hadn't seen yet. And they're right in the throes of it. And the, the miracle there was so spectacular uh, that the people came out and they saw that, and they actually asked Jesus to leave. They asked him to, uh, to depart from them. Some people have said, well, you know, one of three reasons probably they would do that. They just saw the person that they try and restrain, all of a sudden they say, see him. I like the way Luke's gospel says, they saw him seated, dressed, and in his right mind. They'd never seen any of those three, and yet they saw this man this way. When the villagers came out, they, they asked him to depart. And I've had people say, well, uh, you know, what would be the reasons? Well, there are three clear reasons that people might ask Jesus to leave. Number one, if he knew what was inside of that man, he knows what's inside of me. 
could expose something. There's other people that have said, he just destroyed our livelihood. I mean, there's a herd of pigs and they've gone over, you know, what's, what else is he going to destroy if he sticks around? And the third one is if he has this degree of authority, what, what's he going to do uh, as far as the leadership in that area? He becomes, he becomes more powerful than them, right? And so uh, I've had people before ask me, so which one of the three is it? And my answer is yes. <laughs> it's likely all three of those. You see, there's reasons why people don't want Jesus around. Um, but the disciples, they're just overwhelmed with seeing all of this. And so they're with Jesus, though. They just stuck with him through the storm. And they're not going to stay with these people. They're going to go on with Jesus. So they head out and it tells us post-haste, now we don't have... There's another miracle that's kind of unusual. There's a, there's a synagogue leader. His name is Jairus. And he's got a daughter who's sick and beckons Jesus to come heal her. Well, en route to getting there, this isn't a healing of a sick person because before he gets there, the girl, what happened to her? She died. So now we have something that's not seen very often, and, and that's a resurrection. We have a resurrection taking place. And on the way, there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and he refers to her as daughter. She reaches out and touches his cloak, and, and, uh, and he perceives her faith, turns around, says, who's touched me? And if you're following that story, that she kind of uh, fesses up and he refers to her as daughter. And he says, your faith has made you well. Um, well, we're not done with, those are not garden variety. Those are not small things. Those aren't things that you can pass over or explain in some other ways or say, well, there are a lot of people of faith who've performed these kind of miracles. Well, then you get into chapter six and you have some really interesting things. Uh, the ones I was just describing are chapter 4, but uh, then Jesus in chapter 6, he says, now you have gone from being an observer, I'm going to make you a full participant. So he takes the 12 and he takes them two by two and guess what he does with them? He sends them out and what does he send them out to do? Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to combine not just, I'm going to combine Matthew, Mark, and Luke because all of them tell the story of the 12 going out in two by two. But here it says that they would go out, cast out demons, and heal the sick. If you take all four of the, or three of the passages with the 12, and then the one in Luke in chapter 10 of the 72, he sends out two by two as well. You, you combine the things that he, Jesus commanded them to do, there are four things in there. It says you'll cast out demons, you'll heal the sick, you'll preach the kingdom. It's an interesting thing. You have to have power to do that right, because... It's the most powerful thing in the world. It's the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus gave 27 kingdom parables. And then uh, the last thing was, he says, raise the dead. So it's not until they get to the other side that they see this phenomenal miracle of the casting out of uh, multiple demons. And then, and then they have this, this whole... Uh, episode with a, a little girl who's raised back to life and now all of a sudden they're in the game and they go out and when they come to a remote place because they want to celebrate um, again Luke's gospel is a little bit more articulated in this and more defined than, than uh, the, the brief version that you have in Mark's gospel but uh, it tells us that you know John the Baptist has just recently been killed you know who's a relative of Jesus and he's out um, in a rural place. They want to get out in a rural place because he's mourning, but they're excited about what God did through them as they went out and they came back and it's their first opportunity to celebrate with Jesus. 
And uh, Jesus tells him not to get too proud about that. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And he tells that story in uh, Luke chapter 10. Um, but all of a sudden, they become full participants with the power and the authority that they have in the name of Jesus to be able to perform these miracles. That's all on the other side, folks. That's not on this side. It's on the other side. Now, I'm sitting there. It's a week from my son going to the, the other other side, the real eternal other side, and I'm reading this, and I just can't get off of the first few words of Jesus, an invitation. It was an invitation. Let us puts it in the jussive. That means he's asking people, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. It's an invitation. Let us go to the other side. And I think about all the stuff that takes place. Well, now, after the 12 came back, they're out there with Jesus. They're really enjoying themselves. But guess what happens at the end of Mark 6? I'm just two chapters into this. There's a bunch of other people that have come out because they've heard of these phenomenal miracles on the other side. And so they come out, and they're kind of out in the wilderness, there's not a whole lot there, and what, what happens? They don't have a place. The disciples are trying to send them away, not for altruistic reasons. They want to spend some time with Jesus. And they say, you know, send these people away so they can go into the towns and villages. He says, and he looks at them, and he looked at the people, and again, now I'm going to Luke's gospel, but he says he saw them, he had compassion on them, saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so... He turns to them and he says, you give them something to eat. Boy, now we're getting into full participation again. They just were sent out to cast out. They're full participants. Do you, you pick that up? And they said, well, we don't have anything. All we have is, you know, this is a boy that has a small lunch. They thought that would be a good brush off. You know, there's just no food here. And so Jesus takes the loaves and the fishes and he blesses them, and the disciples distribute them. You follow there? They're really, on the other side, they're full participants. And uh, then I sat there, and I thought, as I'm, as I'm just a week away from our and we'd already been told that, you know, a palliative care group had come in and said things are not going to probably last very long. And you know what I said? I said, oh, God, I know there's more. On the other side, I don't want to go there. Please, can you keep us on this side? And it dawned on me, I thought, you know what? Jesus didn't only know what was on the other side, but guess what else he knew? He knew what was in the middle. Full knowledge. Do you think Jesus was not aware? He had just revealed what was in the hearts of the people when they were judging him when he was healing people on the Sabbath the guy with the shriveled hand, or when it says he perceived all their thoughts in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when the guys lowered their friend down through, he perceived their thoughts. And so he said, just so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, young man, get up and take up your mat and go home. I want you to get up and go. And so he did that. So he could perceive thoughts. He could certainly perceive a storm. Could he not? In fact, it just might be like God to say, Let's have a storm, shall we? We're kind of the creator of everything. Why don't we do the storm thing? And then let's see who goes with us through the storm and has faith that has been evaporated to have it restored so they can become full participants. And I said, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready. I, I'm willing to go to the other side. 
And I started looking at that passage of scripture very differently. I stopped looking at all these little intricacies of what was going on in the boat and what Jesus was doing, what they were responding. And I was looking at the environment that Jesus knew full well, what was in store for them down in the future and what was in store for them to be able to get down to that point in the future. Um, And then I saw a pattern that developed, and I don't have enough time to really unveil all of that, but if you follow it through the time of Jesus and people that Jesus touches, it's very consistent, and I'll just use some C's here to kind of identify. There's two ways that people respond to that point in the middle, that point of crisis, when the Lord invites us along the way. So the initial invitation, or we'll call it the initial call, of God is with the disciples is what? Leave your nets, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I think anybody that's ever been saved, has, have given their lives to Christ, they experience the, the, the pull of the Holy Spirit, the tug of the Holy Spirit, that there's more than you. Um, and then we, of course, surrender our sin. There's a lot of different kinds of things. We, we ask for forgiveness. We commit to follow the Lord. And so those two parts are consistently pretty much intact. That's this call of the Lord or the conviction of the Lord to move us along. And the disciples had already left. We know that they didn't have a ton of faith at this point in time. That kind of faith, it, it tells us in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, it says, um, these things have been necessary. He says, you're going through trials right now, but these things are necessary so that your faith, which is of greater value than gold, will be refined as though through a fire. And so what Jesus knows is that the faith that was not there, the only way it becomes there where you can become a full participant is if in the route to going to the other side, if there's something that will have a tendency to sharpen and sh- our, our faith. Are you with me so far? You can nod maybe. That's nice. Thank you, Joel. Amen. Yeah. So, um, so here's the pattern that we see with the disciples, and then we're going to talk about what happens with most people. It's, it's not like, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who don't hear the call of Jesus, and then they make some form of commitment, but there's two kinds of commitment. There's one where we're all in, and, uh, and there's nothing... Good, and there's others who say, you know, I'm going to give this a try. I've had people who their spouse has left them and they're trying to get their spouse back. And so Jesus becomes a little bit of a talisman, you know. Uh, we just a rabbit's foot, something else. Uh, I've tried everything else. Let me try this. Let me try the Jesus thing. And I'll tell you, that doesn't usually last very well. What, what happens is there's, it's pretty weak commitment. And then you have a crisis. The crisis hits both. And then there's two responses to the crisis. One is like a loop, and the other one is a trajectory that goes somewhere. And the loop is like this. We get the call of Jesus. We commit into some measure that. We hit a crisis, and the crisis then drives us to this whole issue of um, personal confliction. You know, we're conflicted about what's going to happen. We don't like this. And so then we revert back to convenience or comfort, the level of comfort, and there we stay. Until we realize we need Jesus again, and all of a sudden we hear the call of the Holy Spirit, and what do we do? We hear this call, and then we commit, I'm going to really do it this time. And then there's a crisis. There's always a crisis in there. 
And then you got two options, and the one, the loop one, is then to run back to this being conflicted with what to do and moving toward convenience. Are you seeing a pattern? And it goes like this. In fact, Marlene and I know people that are in perennial crisis. Why? Because they've never been able to get through one and get beyond that circle. So they, they, it, it's necessary for them. It's necessitated by their, their lack of undying commitment to Christ. Now, I'm not just saying, saying the, the, uh, uh, the disciples were you know, perfect or anything. They had no faith. They were entrapped in a boat with Jesus. But what happened with them is when they did go through the crisis with Jesus, all of a sudden something else happened. They, when they hit the crisis but they stayed with Jesus, what was the first thing they experienced? There's another sea in there. It's calm. It's not convenience. It's not something else. So Jesus had called them. They had committed. They experienced a crisis. Now all of a sudden they experienced calm. That that thing that surpasses our understanding, a peace that passes all understanding, was their possession. So they went to calm, and then, guess what ends up happening? They recommit to the Lord, uh, what I would call a deeper commitment, and then they collaborate. And this is a trajectory like, like this. It doesn't go in a loop. If you do experience a crisis in the future beyond that, you've already gone through one. You've already weathered a storm, and you come out better on the other side. And so what happens? What's your view of a crisis? Whatever. Read any of the saints. Read the, the John Wesleys or the Teresa of Avila or, you know, St. John of the Cross or anybody that's kind of gone through crises in their lives. And the, cri- the power of the crisis diminishes because once you enter a place where you've experienced the Holy Spirit deeply, we refer to that as the sanctifying work of God in us, once you've experienced that deeply, the crisis doesn't feel so crisis-like anymore. And all of a sudden, you get to this place where you're co-laborers and you're collabor- you know, collaborators with Jesus in this, and you get to experience stuff like, like helping with your meager little hands feed 5,000 people in your meager little faith, being able to pray and demons respond and sick people are made well. Are you with me? And so there I sat in a hospital room saying, ugh, I'm going to be glad for him when he's on the other side, but I don't want to go through this. And my wife doesn't want to go through this. Marlene begged the Lord many times. You know, she got rock-solid faith. It's no, no problem there. Her faith was never wavering or shattered, but she's begging with the Lord, and I was begging with the Lord. And uh, as we were going through that, and uh, didn't really want to be on the lake. Um, but as I started looking through that, I thought, okay, we're all in. We're all in. So I thought, we're going we're gonna to go through this and we're going to allow the Lord to refine our faith and sharpen us. In fact, we had people tell us, you guys don't even grieve very well. So I thought, oh, okay, thanks. But uh, I mean, you know, we cried buckets of tears when our son passed away. But, um, but the Lord did something in this and uh, strengthened. I could have Marlene tell her story. Uh, 
he's already created enough disruption trying to get you to play piano. I won't. <laughs> Sam was looking over and saying, why don't you get up to the piano and play with me? And she's like, not on your life. So <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't know the chords to that particular song. Um, but uh, so after we went through that whole thing, the very thing that Marlene said, I, there was one thing I was just uh, terribly fearful of. And that was my whole growing up. Is anything can happen to me, it's not going to bother me. But I, I don't know if I would ever be able to handle having something happen to my kids. And now the kind of the supreme bad thing is happening to one of the kids. After Mitch passed and we had the funeral and we were spending time together and, and praying and talking, she said, she said, the Lord's taken all that away. I mean, taken it away. She didn't, never longer feared the big fear things. It was gone. And uh, that was an answer to prayer. Why? Because she decided she's in the boat with Jesus. She's going to get to the other side, and there's going to be a deepening of faith. And there's going to be some removal of some fear and some doubt along the way. And guess what? The Lord uh, has enabled us as a result of that to be co-laborers and collaborators with the Lord. Now, here's the point of this whole thing. I've met a lot of people that say, in the congregations, we say, God is good, and the people say, all the time. People say that, they don't always believe it. God is good until something really bad happens, and then I'm going to find a, the quickest place to shore. And I know that. Anybody who's served as pastors knows that because we see people do that all the time. And the greatest grief that I have for people like that is they are destined to repeat that same storm over and over and over again. Are you with me? So my prayer for us, for this congregation, is that, and for each one of us, is that we accept the invitation when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, or let's go deeper, or let's do more, uh, or let's advance in some way that, where you're really participating with me, or the Holy Spirit doesn't just want to fill us to make us feel good. He wants to fill us so we can be of service to him in some powerful way. But the only way we get there is to go with Jesus in the boat, to the other side. By the way, he's the one that calmed the storm. They didn't. He's the one that found the place where they were going to land. He's the one that handled the, the legion of demons on the other side. He's the one that blessed the food and it multiplied. But guess what? The people got to be participants in all of that. And my prayer is that, uh, that we are not the people of the loop, you know? We're not the people of that perennial loop, but we're the people on a trajectory to follow Jesus, whatever the Lord calls us to. So I want us to bow for prayer, and I'm just going to give you a second to, to pray to the Lord for wherever you're at on that particular journey, and uh, then I'm going to close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I know there's just stuff that happens in this world, all of us. Um, we do know that, that there's evil that happens, and of course, you're, you just want to eradicate it. But we also know that there are some difficulties you take credit for, um, just uh, 
you know, obviously the ten plagues in the Old Testament, there's several places where you, you've incurred some stuff, but there's a reason for it. And, and there's a reason for that stuff in our lives when we go through the difficulties. So, Lord, right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would call us more deeply to serve you. I pray, Lord, that we would commit to serve you and to live for you. And then I pray, Lord, that when crisis arises, that we recommit and deepen our commitment to you and that ultimately we're going to be experiencing the calm that only you can provide, Holy Spirit, that you can come in and comfort us with a comfort that far surpasses any human comfort. That you would calm us in the storm, just as the storm, and that, Lord, that you would then embolden us and empower us with grown faith uh, to be co-laborers with you, Lord Jesus, that you would consider us worthy to be partners, uh, ambassadors, conduits, uh, channels for your mercy and your grace. So, Lord, I pray that that's the prayer of each one of us that we're all in and that we'll experience things in our own life and in the life of this church that we've never experienced before because of the movement of your Holy Spirit in us and through us and moving us along. So, Lord, we accept your invitation to go to the other side and all the glorious things that re resides there. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So, God is good. All the time. Yeah, that's hey, Dad. Yeah. Can I share my screen? Sure.